0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is joined by Kansas Carradine, who I am honored to speak with, and she talks to us a bit about her start at Riata Ranch, how she transitioned into Cavalier and the circus life, and now how raising kids has totally shifted her worldview. Hope you enjoy!
1: funny because anytime we ask people where they come from with the horses everybody kind of goes back into that childlike place and I definitely have the same joy of just being able to play with horses and so I had horses in the backyard and I started out trail riding on the beach in Southern California and it's kind of a funny story but it was like a babysitter who was 16 who would come and pick me up and I was like two and she would tie me on with a jean jacket you know and we'd ride there back and go trail riding and oftentimes I would like fall asleep and I just that was my you know, hour of babysitting or whatever. But I grew up on a horse, without a doubt, and was just always really comfortable. and never remember a time when horses weren't in my life. And then I had a cousin that was like my my horse buddy that we did everything with, and we started doing Gymkhana together, and then she started getting into Hunter Jumper, and so I kind of wanted to follow suit. And I also started taking jumping lessons in English equitation. And then that evolved a little bit to me actually going to a boarding school. So I went to Ohio Valley boarding school where I got to have horses as part of PE. I mean, I tease that the best boyfriend a girl can have in high school is a horse. It just keeps you out of trouble. Definitely kept me out of trouble. Keeps you honest and all that responsibility that we learned through animal husbandry was just essential. And so, you know, horses were really part of my, I would say, sanity. And even before I really understood kind of what they were doing on this energetic level that I I study a lot as an adult. You know, I came from a really uh, challenged family dynamic and like dysfunctional family relations and there was just a lot of absence of parenting. I really believe that the therapy of being around the horses and having the regular routine, because any barn you go into has a methodical way of operating. It's very ritualistic in a way and I feel like those rituals and those patterns actually give us safety and so especially as a young person, you don't have to overtly say like, oh, you're in therapy, but there's a therapeutic aspect to that nurturing environment of you know, the familiarity and the process of tacking up and then brushing your horse after you finish and then maybe giving them their grain afterward, putting their blanket, all of these things, they really help create uh, like a comfort level and security that I didn't know I needed, but it was definitely working on for a long time. So you started the hunter jumper world. What was that like? It was so short I don't really remember it that much but what I loved about it is uh, I was in kind of a lower level program so I got to ride a lot of different horses. I never had my own horse and I think that was a really good benefit because even now I always say that you know being on lots of different horses will help you become a better horseman. And although it's beautiful to have that relationship and to build that incredible bond and unity that we all love there's also a tremendous amount of value for having it, being able to mix it up and ride a lot of different types of horses. And that carried me to, I really wanted to go into cross country and eventing. I had a little bit more, I guess, fire, which would make sense that I eventually became a trick rider, but um, I just wanted to kind of be daring. So I had in my mind that I was gonna take that route, but I went to the summer camp for a couple weeks at a place called Rihanna Ranch. And I showed up with my britches and my helmet and I was very interested in having that same experience. But then everybody was wearing tennis shoes and jeans and (laughs) hats. And right away I had to, you know, just like throw everything that I knew out the window and I never looked back. That was awesome. So I just kind of signed up to become much more uh, a ranch and a Western oriented person since I was 11 years old. And then that, you know, carried me through. And I feel like as, as young horsemen, We're really being influenced by our environment, and you know, there's an imprinting that happened from the the more of the pony club, hunter jumper world that I'm so grateful for because it gave me a better, I would say, my hands and my seat, and just to have that well-roundedness. But then also being able to say, okay, we're going to totally switch modalities, and we're going to have a little bit more of um, lighter contact and, and put more into like. Rain Cowhurst Western World, I loved that. And just being able to have the contrast and be able to play with both, because then now as an adult, and as I was learning you know, through training, there's times where each discipline, each modality has applicable uses. You know, at Riyadh Ranch, uh, doing more Western riding and trick riding all the way through until I graduated high school, and then a little bit beyond. I never really stopped, you know, trick riding it was a lot of pressure. It was very natural for me to take that pressure um, when I was young because I was so excited about it. And everything that I was learning it was just amazing to be able to stand up on the horses. And I didn't know that much about Liberty at the time, but we would do these matching steps and running beside with our horses and I would just, take my, my favorite amazing horse that I had named Arapahoe, who became a briar horse, by the way, which is like every little girl's dream. So oh my God. Arapahoe is a little POA leopard. He was amazing. And I would just go run with him through the orange groves that were around there in the Southern Central Valley and just get off and run beside him. and I would just let him go and I would run and we would track and he would be beside me all the time. We didn't really call it liberty then. You know, and I'd hop on whenever I wanted to and I'd run beside and we'd go jogging together and, and I just remembered like, that unity was just one of the happiest times and just such a heart-opening experience in my life. And at the same time, like everybody who navigates through, I think, challenging moments in high school, having all of the pressure of being um, on a professional team was really intense. I can think of a really specific, challenging moment when I was learning to Roman ride. I started Roman riding when I was about 14. Will you explain
0: Roman riding for people that don't know what it is? Absolutely.
1: (laughs) So uh, trick riding is where you're with one horse and you're doing a lot of different acrobatics and stunts on the one horse. And Roman riding is standing up on two horses. So, usually you control one team, and so you stand up on two horses. But I've also been able to have the immense pleasure because it's one of my favorite things to do to even have a four up people do even more horses as well, but to stand on two and have two in front as well.
0: Yeah, so you have one leg on the two middle, like one leg on each horse and the two middle horses, and then you have horses on the outside is usually what it is, right?
1: Um, Not for the four up that we did in Cavalia. So I would stand up on the two horses with one leg on each side as the back team as the wheelers uh, and then the front team the leaders were in front and we actually did a switch that was pretty clever because we did it on stage while there was two st- separate teams independently and then one of those riders would bring the team out past me the long reins and I would grab them and we would continue and then all of a sudden I would be controlling all four horses and the other person would have jumped off. Oh, wow. So it unravel <laughs> that in your head. Yeah. It was a wonderful choreography that we put together in Cavalio that was amazing. And a few people were able to do that fun stunt, that role, because it remained in the show until it closed. So yeah. it's a long time. So going back to Roman writing, I started out when I was 14 and rode several different teams that we had at Rietta Ranch. And we were putting lots of teams together, so I was always having the pleasure of understanding how to match teams. And I had the pleasure of being able to see the whole process of making a Roman team. And it's more than just finding a couple horses that maybe look alike, but it's also being able to match strides, match temperament, you know, flexibility, and then, you know, height also can come into play. So we trained a lot of different teams. And at one point, there was another Roman riding team, that was brought in from another ranch that I was offered to do an act with. And so basically it's a traditional Roman riding act you've seen everywhere, which is where the horses come in. They do a little bit of a split kind of run around the world where we stop and you send one horse all the way around to show that they're not connected together. I never tie my teams together. I think you just break. Oh, literally
0: physically tied.
1: Correct. Yeah. Uh, some people will tie Roman horses together, but Um, I believe you just break equipment and can scare horses. It's not something that I recommend and that I ever do now. (laughs) Yeah. So really teaching them to to match and to stay together like a Liberty, same thing, just showing the horses to match at the withers and to to really read each other and rate. And it's really fun. I I have to say one of my favorite things to do is to run ride and to train Roman teams. But anyway, going back, we had this uh, task to work with this team that also did a jump through fire. And I was just starting to build this act and be able to perform it. And it was one of the hardest things that I did as a teenager. You know, there's a lot of insecurities that come up and I was really solid, uh, you could say as a varsity athlete, the equivalent of varsity varsity athlete as a trick rider. And then coming into this Roman writing act where I had to do a big solo act and carry this on a team that was not easy was really my biggest challenge that I had to, to come through because I would fall off all the time, basically. We would come up and then one horse was really forward, another one would really scotch and not come all the way through, and then I would fly off in all kinds of different positions. Ugh. And luckily, I never got hurt, but my ego was constantly bruised and battered. And and this is in front of a crowd as well? Well, this is the training process. Okay. And then, so I already knew that I wasn't like 100% solid at this. And so that's what really, it it just took a lot of grit for me to say, okay, we're gonna go do this in a show. But sometimes it was like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Because you know, those particular horses, we didn't start them and they were just a little bit more inconsistent. I'll put it that way. But the shows were already booked. And so we had to-
0: Be ready at that time. Do those
1: contracts, exactly. It was one of the first times that I also started to be like, gosh, I I was,
0: (laughs) It's always, I think, a hard moment when
1: you start to lose confidence in your coach. And to be honest, it was one of the first times that I was like, if you can't help me through this, then who can? And I'm out here on my own. And that was, you know, I think a big teenage crisis that I had. And I really just, I wanted to quit, I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to fail in front of like 5,000 people because we did shows in front of these huge audiences. (laughs) And I was just really um, stressed about it. Long story short, I had this one really intense memory of, you know, there was a lot of cowboy up philosophy at, uh, at the ranch where I grew up, which has a lot of excellent time and place. It's, it's, it's very useful, but it also can become a lot of pressure. And so we were doing this, this big indoor arena and it was crowded with like that 5,000 people. And here comes time to jump the fire jump and you know, one of the horses refused, and I go flying. Um, Into the fire? Yeah, usually <laughs> onto the jump, and I'm wearing like a leotard, and you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> so I get back on, get the team together, go over the second time, second time, horses split, I have another crash and another spectacular crash. And so then I get back on, and the person who was, you know, on the ground with me just looked at me like, okay, you're gonna school them. Just sit on them and just drive them over and just school them, at least live with that. But I looked with like this, you know, look of death in my eyes, like, oh no, I'm taking this all the way in. And so I got up and I gathered that grit and determination inside me. And I was able to bring the horses over and it was successful and the whole crowd went wild. And in a way we really built up like how hard it was and everybody was kind of there cheering for the underdog in that moment. So it had an amazing success and it felt great. And then the joke was that the, you know, the producer at the time, rodeo contractor said, hey, you know, tell her she doesn't have to make it look so hard. And, you know, if only I was really, really, uh, you know, acting it because it was, it was one of the hardest things I ever did. But, um, because I had faced such a difficult Roman writing when I was younger, I had no idea that I would basically become like a professional Roman writer and some of the other things that I, that I met and those challenges, they definitely became easier. Like it gave me something else to, to go through. And that was where I met... I never was afraid of it but I was so mad and I would grit my teeth and clench my jaw because I just wanted to conquer it and I knew that there was something in you know the training the skill the technique that could be refined so that I was able to you know pass that class basically what I didn't know I would say just not my immaturity but in my you know innocence or my youth is that there was an energetic component. And now being able to to cultivate that and be able to really understand and like make a blend with like, okay, how is this not working? And you know, it's a multi-dimensional situation that happens when you're trying to do an act. It's not just, okay, this is grit and you know, ride fast, take chances and push as hard as you can. Like there's so much um, methodology that can be put into play to help those things, you know, go
0: well. Do you think that it's part of just your personality growing up that you wanted to like almost be the best and do it and I like that kind of gung-ho-ness in you? Yeah, I mean, I think that I was definitely trying to prove something. I've
1: changed so much from my my 16-year-old self,
0: <laughs> I hope
1: I have. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and just like my early 20s too, really having to try and prove myself. And there was a lot of masculine qualities in being a step performer. So you want to show yourself as being like, you know, obviously like you're this beautiful person who's dressed up in, you know, like I said, like a leotard standing on two horses or whatever. Um, but you also want to be as tough. I have. I did a show where I broke my nose doing a backbend, and I completed it. And the blood was coming down my chest, and I stood up with <laughs> flag in each hand doing a dome stand, and I made like the paper because they took a picture of it <laughs> about you know somebody who was basically going through a really tragic crisis accident, but was still continuing on, on Yeah. and not allowing anything to take you off the path. And so I had that kind of warrior soldier mentality from a very young age. And then I had a total transformation when I became a mother, a total, total transformation. It was the best transformation of my life. And I became less self-centered, less egoistic and definitely less I wasn't reckless, but I I didn't have to be as dangerous in order to prove myself that I was really cool. And that was like the best journey that I've ever made. And I appreciate all of the merit badges that I collected over the years from doing really tough, dangerous things. And they all have developed my character. But I think that there's a lot to be said for learning these softer feminine qualities as well of really opening our hearts to compassion and really having the patience and the temperament to be able to really gauge and read what's right in this environment. Um, And to take those steps from a wise place instead of just trying to get attention, being like the ballsiest, you know? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So right now we at Ranch International is a Western performance team where girls are trick riding and trick roping mostly in rodeos and specialty events around the world and they also have a horsemanship and self-development component to that as well for a, a program for youth. But it actually started a long time ago by a gentleman named Tom Meyer as a riding school, and he just did a whole bunch of different things with horses and with kids. And he had over 3,000 students do everything from, you know, cow horse to English and jumping and, you know, trick riding, everything in between, you know, trail rides, camps, driving horses and hitches and, and everything else you could imagine. And it was a very authentic horsemanship experience where you learned about ranch life. But he also provided a safe haven for a lot of people, and there was some... I would say, you know, uh, troubled kids or kids who perhaps came from troubled families that ended up being brought under the umbrella of the Meyer family. And I was definitely kind of one of those. So, you know, Tom Meyer and his wife Vicki became my adoptive parents. I always say that's my foster family or my cowboy family. And it's very true. Uh, they They just had such a grounded, wholesome lifestyle and it just really made so much sense. But I stayed there until I was uh, 18 years old and graduated high school and I really wanted freedom because in a way I was living between two worlds so I came from you know Los Angeles and this whole family with a lot of celebrity and then I was living very much under the radar you know with uh holes in my jeans and old tennis shoes and you know like a a very small budget to get new new clothes each year and it was just living a really modest lifestyle and I loved it but that did create a little bit of like inner turmoil because I knew I didn't always want to do rodeo like that was really clear it was a wonderful foundation and I appreciate the Western values but it just wasn't my I didn't see longevity of my career being in the rodeo world and so I didn't really know where I fit at all because I love the passion of performance with horses because I think you take the agenda away from like traditional competition world, and it's beautiful to be able to be in that presentation mode as opposed to have to show your horse to please like a judge. We get this great feedback from the audience, and it's usually pretty easy to to make an audience smile because you know they love seeing fast running horse and the bond that's developed, you know, because of it. But there was a lot of pressure. Like I said, being in a professional environment, you know, early on, and so I wanted to release from that, that pressure. I always got introduced as the daughter of David Kearney, and I was really tired of that. (laughs) And I didn't want to be, I wanted to kind of create my own identity, even though I didn't know what that was. And my identity had been so wrapped up in horses, that I needed to do something totally different. And my way of kind of breaking free was also just introducing myself by only my first name and doing nothing that had to do with horses. And it wasn't until later that I got back in and having some respect. I mean, it's interesting. You see how kind of boyfriends can influence women and I didn't have a lot of support from any of them. They all were like, oh, that's kid stuff that you're doing. When are you gonna do something real, you know, with horses?
0: And this was like late teens, early twenties. exactly. I That's think I super had. real in my mind. Because I was trying to
1: fill this masculine place in my life, I really took those words to heart, even though I shouldn't have. And it wasn't until I had a really, you know, good advice. They go, Oh, you're a
0: horse jibber.
1: So jibber. Yeah. So <laughs> basically, I had like a a, a short uh, experience in the ski world. I listened to one of your podcast, and you were talking to, you know, pro snowboarder. Um, uh, Sydney
0: Condra. Yeah. <laughs> And I laughed
1: too because um, I just, I could basically quit horses for snow and for skiing. It it just lasted a little while, but I was kind of putting in that same grit and determination and, you know, aggressive
0: One addiction for the next. That's
1: it, you know? (laughs) But it added a whole other layer to, I guess, becoming kind of a professional athlete and understanding like the mindset. And so a lot of that had been developed because it is so much about kind of mental preparation. But I had a wonderful encouragement from a friend of mine who said, oh, so you're a horse jibber. Like, basically, it's a person who is jumping around on horses and getting off and on in stylish ways. Like a snowboarder will go over a jump and have different grabs and different ways of, you know, airing over uh, tabletops and things like that. And it made it, in a second, there was just something that clicked that was like, oh my gosh, what I'm doing isn't just kid stuff, it actually has a lot of value. Mind you, this is all pre-YouTube and pre, I would say, like support of the world for alternative lifestyles and cultures. And the yeah, tri- it
0: wasn't a normal path. No, and Trick
1: riding still is such a niche sport. There's not a huge we've tried to have different governing bodies that have arisen, but it's still very small. Very, very, very small. And so trying to get people to understand it, people say, What in the world is trick riding? Well we do acrobatics on horses. Oh, like like vaulting? Said, no, it's not exactly like vaulting. The horses run free and we do use a saddle. So most people just don't know much about it and I'm, I'm grateful to kind of have been an ambassador through many, many years of the sport. You know, I'm going on like 30 years of having a lot of experience with it, and I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to trick ride all the way until being 40. I mean, I was doing uh, Cavalia in China on my 40th birthday and still performing in the show. I started out with Cavalia as being hired as a trick rider, and then over time I ended up being a trick roper as well, bringing my lasso acts to the show and then doing the Roman riding, as well as, you know, working with the, the bareback riders in the voltigeant Champion, which is the kind of the standing up and then and the circle and the round with the big horses.
0: Uh, how old were you when you, so what did the cavalia journey look like in terms of like signing on with them and all of that, if you want to talk about it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went to cavalia when I was 26 and I was just amazed that I was able to get into the into the cast. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I was one of the first rehires. So maybe there was 3 or 4 people out of the original cast. So it was very in the early stages of the of the original show. My experience with Cavalier, the amazing thing about it is It allowed so many different people from different disciplines to come together. And parts of the world. Parts of the world. (laughs) Even from the same different discipline, but different parts of the world. And so it allowed us all to say, oh, well, even East Coast to West Coast trick riders do things a little bit differently. Oh, wow. So you guys use dog collars and nylon straps for your things? We only use leather out on the West Coast. Stuff like that. Yeah. Which is always fascinating to me. You know, I've been blessed to have a lot of different jobs throughout the years with Cavalier, My history goes almost 15 years. And so even though I started out as a trick writer, Roman writer and an artist and performer in the show, you know, I wanted to kind of do that forever, but life had other plans. And then when I met my husband and then we had, you know, our first child, obviously I was no longer performing in the show. And I really wanted to take the time to be just a mom and to not have to rush back and work. It's an incredible training schedule because you basically finish the show at like 11.30 at night and you would start probably 12 hours earlier and it takes most of the whole day. And I just knew that I couldn't be everything that I wanted to be for my horses or for my kids if I was doing both to a high degree of intensity. So I took the option to be off tour and to take a really cool opportunity to buy horses for the show and to train horses for the show. So I actually would go out and be like a scout and hunt Uh, to find different horses that would be eventually trick riding and Roman riding horses in the show. And that started in 2008, and I bought and trained a lot of the horses that also ended up becoming part of the Odiseo cast. So it was always a passion of mine to be able to assess the temperaments of the horses and to really choose horses that would have the resilience and kind of the joy to be able to be on tour and who would be a pleasure to work with. Because I always saw that the horses who were kind of easy to work with, who were easygoing, had a great temperament. Let's say they would be a joy and they would always be taken out and every rider would just be in love with them. That was my you know greatest goal always is it to just keeps train.
0: everyone happy
1: exactly exactly because yeah you can find horse and, and kind of put them in they might be able to work but if they're really kind of we could say special needs or if they have just some idiosyncrasies that it's harder for them to maybe deal with the change in riders and things like that it might be more uncomfortable basically for the horse and one thing I will say about Cavalia is I find that they did a really good job of always making sure that you know, if the horse had difficulty on tour, they would try to keep him. For example, we had this one horse who was fantastic as a trick riding horse. He was just a really healthy, amazing, sound little quarter horse. But he just showed signs of being kind of colicky. False colic, like just being a little bit more stressed due to the travel and everything. And they said, no, you know, we don't want to have the horse in the environment. And that was, you know, Fred Pinot in the early days made that a mandate really early on. So that philosophy carried through. But one of the other things that I got to do over the years with Cavalli, because then I came back. So that was in 2008. I was buying and training horses for the show. Then I got pregnant with my second child. So I was always taking these like extended maternity leaves, um, (laughs) which was great, but it, it allowed me to have time to kind of focus back in on myself and my horse journey and see what else was there for me. So after I had my first child, I ended up going into a self-discovery about the horses and healing work because I knew there was something something else going on, but I didn't really understand it. And so that's how I found Ariana Strozzi's work, Equine Guided Education, which is you know leadership in horses and understanding you know the somatics or how our bodies actually are responding to the environment and how everything, you know, that the horses are responding to is really our energy. And it might seem like very normal conversation now, but for me, at that time, it blew my mind to see how horses were healing people, working with people with trauma, able to read our energy, and they were just so transformative in in every way. I mean, I just finished another weekend of a self-development retreat with with Skyhorse, with Ariana's Jersey, here at her ranch in Sonoma County. And people from all different walks of life, from all over the world, came together. And it's such a subtle vibration to be able to, to just palpably see how the horses are working on a frequency level in ways that we can't even measure and imagine everybody was able to have it their own experience in the round pen. And to see this one horse and the many colors and transformations that she showed that just blew everybody's minds because there would be things happening in the environment. And, you know, I would think, oh, well, that, that mare is just in heat or Perhaps there's just something that is bothering her. It would eventually come out like, oh no, there's like relationship issues here. And that's why there's some teething going on with this horse coming outside the fence. There was actually a moment where somebody who was experiencing like a, a, a significant amount of, of trauma and their body was really stimulated in a fight or flight response. And when she entered into the round pen with that particular horse who had already seen several different people, that horse responded in a way that was actually dangerous and she had to come out of the round pen. And it was it was actually the first time I had seen that. I had heard about it before, but I had never witnessed it. And because we had watched that horse go through, say, a dozen different people, you could see really how each person's energy was was affecting that situation. And there's nothing else that you could say other than that there was some profound mirroring happening. And everybody, their breath was taken away with how receptive the horse was to each individual. How generous of spirit and how grounded and there was so much dignity. It, it was not the situation where those therapeutic settings where you feel like you're dumping anything on the horse. The horse was having such nobility to be able to help that process with such complete resolution of neutrality without judgment. I think the contrast that was able to see with somebody else walking in after that moment of high energy, you could see then everything could be serene and calm. And so it really was the best mirror just to explain how we can be responsible for our own energy systems and how that helps the horses. And then really how it helps the other members of our community Mm -hmm. and the other people that are around us in our life and in our family. You know, we can see it because the horses are such big animals. And so they become really, you know, big reflective mirrors. But if, if, if it's working in that dynamic, then this is working in the environment at large. It's working all the time.
0: Did you recognize at the time the transformation that was happening within you? When I first started working
1: with Ariana and began to study more of the subtle energies of how horses were working with us, I knew right away that my whole life was shifted. I knew that my whole worldview was shifted. I knew that everything was changing. And in a way, it was kind of like everything was upside down in my philosophy and my understanding of reality. It was like, okay, so how do I go forward with this? And so I imagine, or I can say that I had a little bit of a crisis going on because I didn't know how I was going to make the blend in being a professional horse person and now knowing with the responsibility that I know, like, oh my gosh, the horses are listening to everything. Oh my gosh, the horses understand when we speak to them. Oh my gosh, we can't just talk to them as though they're creatures who don't understand. And again, now it feels so ignorant of me, but, I think, you know, I was I was conditioned so much many of us are as a young person, like don't treat your horses as a pet. And the kind of cowboy where you kind of laugh like oh this person actually talks to their horses (laughs) yeah well we do talk to their horses and you know what they talk back like not in words but in so many other ways and in your dreams and in their body language and I continue to be excited about it too that's the other thing like I think we're all still on that transformation like I am fully aware that I know so little Mm -hmm. (laughs) about the horse and the way that they're working with us but I'm so curious about the journey and it, it still just continues to fascinate me. I was just talking with a really good friend of mine who was sharing some animal communicator experiences that he had. And you know, just to understand the innocence that the way the horses speak, like the language that the horses use to communicate through another intermediary we could say, just shows me like we need to call them into our conscious conversation more frequently. And I think, you know, as first people, we can understand that theoretically, but because it is still kind of new to become like a universal philosophy, we have to still work at it. At least I do. Because I have been around the environment of like, okay, we have a show to get done today. We have the structure, we have... Um, certain of an, an agenda, that's the main thing. I feel like when we have an agenda with horses, you have to turn things off. And now I would say, no, we don't have to turn them off. We have to continue to uphold like the highest principles and really be idealistic in the way like, okay, I'm gonna talk to them before they go to the vet and explain everything that's gonna happen. And I have this amazing mentor of mine that I love so much who works in the, in the film industry who does you know all these big budget pictures and he explains everything to his horses and says okay like this actor's gonna come out there's gonna be these cameras you're gonna be doing this thing i'm gonna set up this rig over you because you know preparing horses for those kind of events is so out of the norm and i just think it makes him a better stunt coordinator and it makes him a better stunt man and definitely a better horse trainer and just a better human if we really acknowledge them as you know the sentient beings that they are so how did you bring it back so I have this, this rhetoric like I notice things that I repeat over and over again and I have been saying that I always felt like I was an un, a bit of an undercover agent for a while. <laughs> Meaning I had this awareness that the horses are reflecting our, our energy and that they're totally sentient and that we can't just have this traditional horsemanship model which is domination based. And just you know, moving away from pressure, and you know, work talks about don't cry or give you something to cry about. All of these kind of philosophies that have kind of been peppered throughout our horsemanship experience. And when I was working, because I obviously went back into working with cavalier as an artist uh, after my second daughter, I came back as a Roman rider and a trick rider and, and a roper back into the show. And then we always have a, a heavy dressage foundation as well. So I think the main thing that unra- unraveled in me is to change my ego, number one, to bring in a lot more humility. I was always exploring as well a lot of indigenous wisdom and spirituality at the same time. And I had been blessed to to witness some Native American horse work and really t- treating it as sacred. And so inside, I would have this private world going on where every time I would have an interaction with the horses and I would go into their stall, I would have a conversation with them and I would touch all four of their feet in a way of like bowing to all their feet and their sacred connection to the ground and to the earth. And I would have my own kind of prayers and sayings that I would you know, speak to them and just really treat them as my partner because there's so much trust involved in strapping yourself to a a fast running free or loose horse, basically tying yourself onto a loose horse and hanging upside down. You know, and all the different things are doing a backbend on them or, you know, all of the stuff that requires a lot of timing and then also in a high pressure environment. So it's one thing to do it in in an arena and at home, as we all know. And it's another thing to do it with that audience and then with a whole bunch of other people's energy around as well. Um, That's a really big factor that, you know, being able to manage that and understand and kind of like I would be creating, let's say, like a field of energy around us. I also, in that time of my own personal growth, was studying a lot of um, heart math, and heart math is a fantastic body of work that basically documented the science of our heart frequencies, or we could say positive frequencies, and measuring what they call the heart rate variability, and how that level of coherence, we could say calling it being in the zone, how that affects our performance level, meaning, you can have more optimal performance when your body is in a high level of coherence. And so there's different tools, just really simply of breathing in through the heart and connecting with your breath and imagining the breath flowing in through the heart and out through the heart. And these simple practices were able to create more centering and I would be doing those all the time. So it was something that I could actually do in silence, in front of everybody, and nobody would know, and I would be connecting my heart energy with the horses and grounding with them. Basically just running energy and doing a lot of visualizations. Even when I wasn't in the barn, you know, at home, I would be sending messages to the horses that I was working with about, you know, what our day was gonna look like or what our routine was gonna be and doing a lot of visualization like as prep and sending pre-care kind of in a meditative sort of way. It's interesting. It sounds like a lot as I go through it because it became so automatic for me, but I've never really spoken it all in, in, in a list until <laughs> right now. So it's like, wow, I do all these different things. And then I've been able to teach my kids about it too. So that's a beautiful thing, you know, becomes quite natural for them to see what their journey is that they will do like a self-check and they will do a centering practice and they will be able to respond that when they're going to go catch a horse in a field and they're already you know 50 feet or 50 yards away that they're already connecting with them and they're already having a conversation with their energy and when they're not even in the same space that they can actually you know we were doing something with horses that were far away in another state and we started connecting with them days before to just to give them that introduction like hey we're gonna see you again we're gonna be doing this and and so just to see how the next generation is gonna be able to make that like a regular part of their practice is so exciting and I think still kind of writing that whole script like I don't know where it's gonna take us and when I when I do work I mostly just work with privates and with you know small kids groups or you know, adults who are interested in, in, in learning it a little bit more, you know, body awareness and being able to take that into their horsemanship. And all of these practices, it's so fun to see how everybody just can latch onto it. And I think that part of it has to do with the work that you're doing and the work that so many other fantastic communicators and equine educators are doing right now. Because the vocabulary has been set and the tone has been set. And so now everybody's ready to like jump to the next level.
0: Yeah. Well, it feels good when you're in that place instead of being in a guarded place or being in an egoic place or being Mm -hmm. when you're open. And what came to mind for me with the horses is when you prep them and when you don't surprise them with things, Mm -hmm. they're prey animals. Mm -hmm. So if you surprise them, the fear comes in. And so if we can prep them as much as possible, there's Mm -hmm. no fear Mm -hmm. that then fleeing or, you know, kicking or aggression or anything has to happen because they're Mm -hmm. prepped.
1: Well, and I think when I started to learn also about my physiology, it helped me understand also the horse and just how we can get tapped into that reptilian part of our brain or how we would like to be using like the prefrontal lobes and having our higher functioning happening so what what, what are the trigger points and understanding that as soon as a horse is triggered their ability to risk take in new information and really it like shuts down learning completely mm-hmm. and so really how to maintain that it's open and really be clear about watching those signals and be like oh okay if we have any sort of resistance being built or or a shutdown happening, then the learning's not there. So there's no point in trying to keep, you know, drumming or drilling that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really just like...
0: It's hitting a wall. Being a dead horse. Yeah. You
1: know, because in a way, that's what... And we say that beating a dead horse has become such a colloquialism, but really what it is, is it's like trying to speak to something that is numbing. You know, there's a protective nature, and so obviously that was put in there for some reason. I used to joke in meeting so many... Different horses, like they need to come with Carfax or the equivalent of like Carfax. Can we set up a registry so that every owner who's had the horse has to write down everything that's happened? Because horses don't come with that history script. We Mm -hmm. have two horses here at the ranch where I'm at that were rescued out of a kill pen in Texas. And they're so sweet. They've been here for a little bit over a year. You know, they're able to be around people now. You know, they're working in the um, eco and guided education program. And to just see their trust come back with humans, like they have so much value. And we don't know what the story was as to why for some reason someone gave up on them. But if we could just know a little bit, I think it would just give us all a little bit more understanding. It's like everybody needs to reread Black Beauty. You know, I was reading it to my daughter and I read it out loud and was just like crying. Or I'd be like, no honey, I don't think we can read this chapter (laughs) right before bed tonight. I'm gonna wait till tomorrow and finish on a better one. it's just like it was all there you know Sewell wrote it like 100 years ago and i think if we could all kind of revisit a little bit of that and put it into our into our lifestyle and just let that kind of permeate i think the horses will benefit a lot from it
0: yeah so what do you you mentioned a little bit what you're doing now with raising your daughters but what is your horse life look like now mm. well i think it's I was really affected a lot
1: with the pandemic because I'd worked with Cavalier for like 15 years and I was actually in China when everything started. We were preparing to open our show in Beijing and um, that obviously all stopped like many people. So I had another wonderful opportunity to be able to rehome and adopt a lot of the horses that were totally sound and happy and ready to go to other homes and that was such a pleasure. Um, I love matching people with horses and because of my experience of going out with Cavalier and helping with you know, scouting and buying and I have a lot of experience with that and so I help people with that as well. And now I'm really kind of rewriting the script. So I'm in a, in a situation where I'm really open to seeing what, what else is, is gonna kind of come this way. Right now I do a lot of clinics with, with kids, obviously with trick riding but it's less about trying to become a great trick rider and much more about learning skills that help your confidence or having an experience that you can have a memory in your body of how you become off-center and how to bring yourself back or where do you find that confidence i love i worked with this one little girl who came in with a posture that was very very reserved you know all of her body language was very insecure let's say And I was told by her grandmother who brought her that she had a recent death in the family of a parent and was just very visibly wounded from that and in a really vulnerable place. And her her grandmother had had a lot of experience with horses and just thought to bring her out. And over the course of just a few sessions, you know, learning how to have some life in your body and to have some presence and to really open your heart and basically putting your body in a somatic experience and and changing a little bit of the posture over time she was able to make eye contact with me she was able to have a smile naturally come out of her you know without any effort she was just naturally it brought a lot more joy back to her and she was playing with the other kids and i was just like to me that was that's what i would love to do the most is just to really help people find that centering. And I find that the trick writing does it in a non-linear way. So you don't really have to think as, you have to think about a lot of things obviously, but there's there's subtle forces at work. And I also love working with kids and helping them read the energy of the horses, so we do a lot of that. My kids have actually become my assistants, and so we've done (laughs) clinics all over the West Coast. I also work with the International Liberty Horse Association, which is just starting up. Um, I was a judge for the championships that were held in Lexington, Kentucky and it was such a great horse show. I mean, there was a photographer who's there in Lexington. She does all kinds of different traditional horse events and she's like, oh my gosh, the horses and the people here are so happy and it's the funnest horse show that I've been at in a really long time and and it's true. I'm really excited about how that organization is opening up. A lot of people think Liberty is just, you know, if you can teach a horse to bow or, or rear and Spanish walk, but. They have bridalist classes, they have combined classes where you can you can still come in on a lead line, you can do part of it mounted, part of it on the ground. There's classes for like little kids, I think it was from seven years old all the way up to 70. Oh, wow. And everybody's <laughs> involved. and. So I think that the new things that are starting to to come out and emerge are really exciting to me and I love being a part of those. And I still do shows as well. I just finished doing a show with my kids. So now they're trick riding and I'm doing liberty instead of doing the the stunts and things like that as I get a little bit older. So yeah, I mostly do private private lessons and kind of a boutique experience where people will call and have me come onto the ranch and, and work with a smaller group. And it's been fun to kind of see where the energy flows. But most of my priority has really been to, to create something that I can bring my kids along with me. So I've always been able to to incorporate them into it as well.
0: Do you bring your own horses when you do those clinics and stuff?
1: No, so um, being with Cavalia, was, it was really important to be untethered. And I always made myself free. I I didn't talk that much about my husband, but my husband also worked with the show. So he's the artistic director and choreographer and because I always wanted to keep our family together and that was like the most important thing in my life and he was working on tour, then I needed to be on tour. So at one point he said, Hey, do you want to get like a ranch and we can do this, you know, horse stable thing. And I thought I could try, it was actually in Sonoma County, when I first met Ariana I was going to live in Sonoma County, register my kids in school, and be like this normal person. <laughs> and my daughter was getting ready for kindergarten and we like went to fill out the application and we, tried, we We're on a waiting list to get into the school and we got in and I was on that precipice of, you know, going into a very traditional lifestyle. And then my husband went back on tour with Cavalier, and I just thought, oh my gosh, like we need to go and do this. And that, I have a natural vagabond gypsy spirit. And so we packed up everything into storage and then we went on tour for another like five years. And it was fantastic. And I remember the first time that I actually came back into the big top because I hadn't seen it in a couple years. It was in San Francisco and I was surrounded by all the other artists and I was like really emotional because I just felt, oh my gosh, this is... It feels like home and I had a similar feeling when I went to work with the circus this winter because I, there's obviously a part of me that's also an entertainer, like I love performing and I have a lot of relationships in the horse performance world so they'll call me to do you know different different events and even though I'm not trying to kind of market myself a lot in that way it still keeps coming and calling me back in and I do love to perform, there's such something fantastic about you know being an entertainer and giving an audience something to think about for a little while that maybe takes them away from their troubles it's kind of an age-old you know live performance it's really this age-old tradition and I just feel really blessed to be a part of that so that's still a big part of of our life and I think it always will be whether I'm there supporting you know my kids as they're the next generation my 16 year old daughter is now like an incredible aerialist as well as you know a good rider and and then my other daughter is totally interested in like dog training as well. So <laughs> I have no doubt that they're gonna go beyond what my husband and I have done. And they're really smart. Like my 16 my year old has said that she wants to go to school for like astrophysicists. Oh wow. And I'm like, <laughs> that's so awesome. I love it because you know, on one side of the family have all artists. I mean, very few of them all went to college and people were kind of just self-made and, Everything rolled into place with Destiny, you know, early on. On my husband's side, he definitely has a more traditional, you know, background with, like, lawyers and doctors and and um, people who have degrees. <laughs> and so to see my kids going off into, like, the sciences and things like that, there's nothing that makes me more proud.
0: Yeah. So if someone wanted to get a hold of you to do some sort of clinic or privates or anything, how do they get in touch with you?
1: Well, I do have a website. It's uh, circuscowgirl.com. And then my email is circuscowgirl at hushmail com even though i don't do a lot of uh, or pretty much any social media you can find me there i'm a little bit under the radar but i'm still out there and i'm still involved also with uh, ariana strozzi and equine guided education so i come back here and help with uh, a lot of the programs throughout the year and so that's sky horse academy
0: yeah. cool do you own any of your own horses right now no it's really weird but that was uh,
1: i didn't i don't know if i explained that as well when you asked the question or if I kind of went off on a tangent but because I was always with Cavalia I never stayed kept at home ranch now that the pandemic happened and the show closed and I'm kind of in a different place it's the first time that I'm really kind of contemplating like okay well should we just sit down and get horse somewhere but we know we don't want to do it in Quebec because you don't just, want to no we're in Quebec right now and we had moved there so that the kids could become bilingual and be close to my husband's mom and she passed away this year and mm-hmm we just kind of feel like it might be time to move on. So there's been a lot of other people in, I guess, my peers who were able to focus on like, you know, horse training or whatever, they're kind of clinicians and things like that. And I just really, you know, focused on like my kids and my family were most important to me. And yeah. I know I was like obviously making up for the fact that like I didn't have the best, <laughs> family support in that way and parenting. So I just was like, this is really where I want to put and focus my energy. It's not on my career. Yeah. And then now as my kids are getting older, I'm kind of like, okay, so what do I do with the career piece? Because <laughs> when I was with Cavalia, it was it was just all like put together for you. As you know, you're like, okay, here's my flight. They've already got my visa. Okay, I'm off to another country. Yeah. <laughs> and it's glamorous, and it was really fun. Like,
0: so fun. Who are some of the specific horses in Cavalia that have stood out to you, or? Oh my gosh, there's so (laughs) many.
1: (laughs) Bungee, um, who was my first horse, he um, was an appendix, well, he was a great quarter horse, but you could totally tell he was like an appendix quarter horse, and he and I were just like, so connected and I had him for you know exclusively for over a year and then when I was I was triggering while I was pregnant and so I was doing a Cossack jog where you hang with one foot all the way upside down on the side off the left side and
0: technically you were three feet off of one side because there were two feet in you if you were pregnant <laughs> yeah exactly there you go yeah and both of us so then
1: she would have been right side up while I was upside down but anyway <laughs> I was in that trick, and then another horse actually got loose on the straight line, not loose, but it came before when they weren't supposed to, and was headed toward me. And I was in my trick, so I'm like, I can't, I can't perceive anything, except I'm doing my, my performance. And my horse, who was always straight as an arrow, ended up zigzagging around and you know, letting the other horse cross me on the opposite side. So they passed um, right shoulder to right shoulder instead, and then went into the garage. And I came up out of my trip and was like, oh my gosh, why did my horse not run straight? Like, what's going on? My husband was watching it because they had people in the garage. He knew like, oh my gosh, this is so scary. But Bungie saved the day. That's where I was just like, oh my God, he's the most amazing thing ever on the planet. So, and Bungie was able to retire on an amazing farm in Australia. And so I know he has a really good life. And then, There was another horse named Kimosabi who is amazing, who is a um, a paint that was like a kid's rope horse that I found up in Oregon. You know, I got to start him with the show while my kids were around and he was great to have around and was just like such a a kind of like a family fixture. And then uh, who else? There was another horse named Poncho, who ended up getting adopted by one of the um, Cavalier riders named Fairland. And she calls him Henry, though. She changed his name to Henry, <laughs> which uh, he was just a pleasure as well. And again, for me, I think part of it is that I get to see that where they stood, where they came from. And he was in like a Western pleasure program. And they're like, we well, just can't get him to slow down, no matter what bit we put on him. And I was like, that's fine. Perfect. He doesn't have to slow down with me. And it's true, because when we're looking for horses, it's always great to have a horse that wants to naturally go. and you know by the end of the week it doesn't kind of like start to slow down too much so he was really happy and always ready to go and, and again just had that perfect partner who actually did a GoFundMe campaign and got her horse shipped all the way from overseas back and he he retired with her forever oh wow um, in uh south carolina north carolina yeah So yeah, there's just so many horses that I fall in love with and that was one of the hardest parts about, I don't think I could be a flipper. I don't think I could just, you know, ever do that because I become really attached. And the last time that I kind of backed out of that position was both because of my my duty to my kids because my little one who was six at the time, she looked up at me and she was like, mommy, when are you just gonna be a mommy again?
0: Oh, wow. And it like, oh,
1: just like straight to the heart. And I just was like, okay. And I had to tell my other daughter, like, I'm sorry, I can't sign you up for these other ballet classes because I'm too busy and I can't take you. At the time, my husband was on tour in Asia and I was running double full-time, like kind of home operation of training horses. And I just was like, okay, this is too much. I'm ready to back out. And it was also because I just got tired of, not tired, but I was attached to the horses that I was kind of,
0: training and had to let go up and I was like, I just can't do this right now. Well, what is something within the community that you'd like to see evolve or change and then how are you or can you implement that change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in trick riding for so many years and I do have a lot of passion for it and a lot of uh, obviously experience and understanding of it so I by no means like to consider myself the main authority but I do have a lot of Ideas to just always like make it safer um, because I think ultimately uh, if you're if you're injured you're not any good to anybody. <laughs> so I, for me, I'm I'm always trying to just reinforce the fact that this is about a very calculated risk and there's a lot of preparation that goes into all of that planning before you actually you know see the finished product. So a lot of people will look at that finished project and be like, oh, it's the fastest horses. You need to just get as fast as you can and just be as um, daring as you can. And that's just what it's supposed to look like. But ultimately, like, you don't want a horse to be running scared and out of control. You want a horse to be running strong. And if it's really fast, that's great. But out of control is not great. <laughs> and to be able to have like the preparation so that everything that you're doing, you've done it with such repetition, it's like, Gymnastics has a wonderful human training program in order to create a lot of body awareness. And I feel like if you know the methodology of understanding what trick comes before the next one and not saying, oh, I wanna do a tail drag right away, or, you know, no, no, no. There's a, there's a very systematic process basically to it. And so as, as I'm teaching, I really like to make sure that everybody really understands that from the get go and that you need to practice everything hundreds of times before you start to add speed to it, both for the horse and for the rider. You know, there's a lot of people who just learn off videos and who just learn in their backyards, and there's a lot of bad habits that can happen. It can be really dangerous and hard on the horses because you have to take into account that the horses are learning how to bear weight as well. So with a new horse, they have to have time to develop those muscles. And then obviously, you know, just in terms of safety, there's I feel comfortable doing it because I'm, I'm watching all of the signs and signals and also sending a lot of, you know, pre-care and communication. And so I've been really grateful to have a, a very good safety record. And I think that that's more important than saying, like, I have the fastest horse or, or whatever. And I was never, like, the best trick rider on the planet. I just have been in it a long time and, and I've been able to save, stay safe and stay healthy. So I like to be able to share that in terms of like the horse, the the trip riding world. And in terms of like the whole industry at large, I really believe the more that we can have more compassionate latitude to each other and the more we can have understanding and respect for each other and all the disciplines because you talk to anybody and whether they started out in the western world or whether they started out in the show jumping world or in the classical dress slash world or in the racing i think everybody has a lot of preconceived ideas and that can somehow block communication and collaboration and i think ultimately we all need to collaborate as much as we can with hey you know how can we help each other and help the horse industry grow in a healthy way somebody brought up the possibility that I can really never imagine, but that, you know, perhaps in the future, people might lobby for the fact that we shouldn't ride horses anymore. And I just thought, how could that ever even happen? But there's definitely, um, you know, a movement to really make that a reality. And I think that it all goes back to education. Um, you know, horses without a doubt are responsible for all of the advancements of human civilization. <laughs> Basically, up until the last 100 years, it's all been on the back of a horse. So there's no denying the fact that we have this very intimate, unique relationship, and it's not going to end overnight. But in order to really preserve it and keep it healthy, and have it grow in a very, you know, balanced and kind of nourishing sort of way for the benefit of the horse. I think we all just really need to be able to collaborate and set things aside that that are have anything to do with kind of like a me-first mentality and you know wanting to put one say discipline above another. You know, all of them have a lot of value. I have to say, in Cavalier it was always really fun because other riders would always be interested in in learning you know different things and so a lot of say dressage riders would come in and be like oh great we get to do cossack," you know this week and then um, you know all of the, the the trip riders as well were all doing dressage every single day and so it helped me become a better rider because of the cross training and I always tell anybody else you know they talk about I would really love to be in a show like that one day and I, I always one of my main things is just saying you gotta train a bunch of different disciplines as much as you can and that helps you become a more well-rounded person, and also to be able to unravel and understand horses. Some horses will be in like one track, and they'll just stay in that domain. Um, but to be able to to take a horse that you know nothing about and be like, oh, they've actually had a little bit of reading in here somewhere, and oh, somebody really knows you know how to help this horse. You know, actually use more lateral work, whatever it is. Um, and I think it really helps you help the horse ultimately at the end of the day
0: yeah that's the whole goal exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) cool uh well i think we got a good amount recorded so thank you for chatting with me i appreciate it oh thank
1: you so much (laughs) i'm really really grateful to get to talk to you get to know you and i was listening to some other podcasts and they're just i think what you're doing for the whole horse world is fantastic
0: thank you yeah bye thanks And thanks for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to follow on both Instagram and Facebook, subscribe on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And the best way to keep Stable Connections going is to share and spread the word. See you next week.